4,000 years ago, a massive war erupted between two alliances that were comprised of, of nine Middle Eastern kingdoms. There were four Mesopotamian kingdoms from the region of the Euphrates River to the north and to the east that came against five Canaanite kingdoms from the lower Jordan River Valley in and around the Dead Sea to the south and to the west. The conflict between these two alliances had been brewing for some time. Before the war, 14 years before the war, the eastern confederacy that were that was headed by a king of Elam named Ketterlaumer, had invaded the Jordan River Valley and had conquered the Canaanite region. And for 12 years, the kings of Canaan had paid tribute to Ketterlaumer and to the kings from the east. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Ketterlaumer and his alliance of Mesopotamian kings marched their armies east and systematically destroyed the cities of Canaan and plundered their goods. And when they turned south towards the Dead Sea, the five Canaanite kings raised their armies and marched out to meet them in battle in the Valley of Sidim in what has become known as the Battle of the Kings. The alliance of the Canaanite kingdoms was decisively defeated, including the kingdoms of Sodom and of Gomorrah, and their cities were plundered. Now the account of the battle of the kings would probably be lost to history were it not for one man who was living in Sodom in those days, a man named Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. And when Sodom and its citizens were were captured and enslaved and, and carried off into exile, Lot too was captured and his possessions were taken away. And in Genesis 14, the Bible records that a fugitive from from this battle escaped the destruction. And he came and told Abraham, who who was living near the oaks of Mamre to the west near Hebron. And when Abraham heard that his nephew Lot had been taken captive and carried away by the kings from the east, he quickly gathered together a small force of only 318 men, men who it says were born in his house and who dwelt inside his camp, men who were trained for war and who were fiercely loyal to Abraham the patriarch. Abraham and his men set out quickly to the north, traveling light and traveling fast, and they caught up with the Mesopotamian forces in the northern regions of Cana. When night fell, Abraham divided his small force and engaged the enemy using primarily the weapon of surprise. The Bible says that the armies of the Mesopotamian kings were defeated and that they were scattered and Abraham and his men chased them north well past the city of Damascus. Abraham then returned. He gathered up all of the people, he gathered up all of their possessions, and both he, the people, and the spoils, and his nephew Lot traveled back south to the Jordan River Valley. When Abraham arrived back home, the king of Sodom came out to meet him and to congratulate him and presumably to thank him. But the king of Sodom is not the only figure who came to meet with Abraham that day. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, we find this very shadowy, very enigmatic report. 
The Bible says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of God Most High. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham, God of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of all. The Bible goes on to report that then the king of Sodom offered to Abraham all of the spoils. He said, just give me back my people and and you can keep all of the plunder that you have won in this battle. The plunder that the Mesopotamian armies had taken away from the kingdoms of Cana. But the Bible says that Abraham refused. And in Genesis 14.22 it says that Abraham told the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or the thong of a sandal or anything that is yours, for fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. Abraham wanted nothing to do with the people or the goods of Sodom. And as we have seen, He didn't want anything to do with the people of Sodom because he had a surpassing promise from God Most High. A promise that far surpassed all of the spoils of the Canaanites. The Lord had told him earlier, I am your very great reward. Abraham had God. He didn't need the Sodomite plunder. And with that, Genesis 14 ends. Melchizedek. The king of Salem, which is an alternate name, by the way, for Jerusalem, just vanishes from the Genesis narrative just as suddenly as he appeared. And we're left wondering, who was he? Where did he come from? How how did he, a Canaanite, come to know Yahweh, El Elyon, God Most High? Who, Who appointed him as a priest of the one true and living God? And if he was of such a great stature and prominence as to bestow upon Abraham a blessing and to receive from Abraham a tribute of a tenth of all the spoils, why don't we hear anything else about him in the narrative of Genesis? Where did he go? What became of Melchizedek after Genesis 14? And the answer to all of these questions that I want to know is a mystery. The fact is the Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, we would not be spending time on this Lord's Day morning in a sermon about Melchizedek were it not for one verse, one rather obscure verse, hidden away in the 110th Psalm. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It was written by David a thousand years before the coming of Christ. And it declares the future victorious reign of the Messiah, the King of Zion. In verse 1, a verse that the author of Hebrews has already quoted in chapter 1 and verse 13, David says of this future messianic king, the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, that is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But then in verse 4, David writes this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, You, speaking of the future messianic king, you are a priest 
forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And there he is again. Only two places in the entire Old Testament that the man is mentioned. A thousand years apart and a thousand years before the coming of Jesus. So we've got now three mentions of Melchizedek. 2000 B.C. in the event of Genesis 14. Around 1000 B.C. in David's 110th Psalm. And somewhere around 64 A.D. in the letter to the Hebrews. Where the author picks up on those previous two instances, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110.4, and he's going to apply both of them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to reach back into the 110th Psalm, and he's going to look at this king, this priest, this Messiah, and apply them to Jesus. Not once, not twice, but five times in the book of Hebrews. And that's why we are giving our attention to Melchizedek this morning. Because as our author is going to make clear in Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 10, as I hope to make clear as we expound upon this message, the identity of Melchizedek as king of Salem and as the priest of God Most High and his interaction with Abraham in Genesis 14 has a lot to teach us about Jesus Christ, about his supremacy as the king and high priest of the new covenant, and about our relationship and interaction with him. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to look at Melchizedek, and then we're going to look past Melchizedek, and we're going to see Jesus. So let's look at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 7, where the author draws upon Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, in order to establish for us the identity of Melchizedek. Verses 1 through 3, read this. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God or of the most high God, God most high, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. All right, the author points out three key aspects of Melchizedek's identity that he draws out of the text of Genesis 14. All right, first, he identifies Melchizedek as the king of righteousness, which is the literal translation of his Hebrew name. Melchizedek is formed from the compounding of two very common Hebrew words. Melek, which means king, and sedek, which means righteousness. Melchizedek. You, you take those two words, melek and sedek, and you, you crunch them together and you get Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, which is likely not a name at all, but rather a description. Given everything that we know about the context of, of Canaan in the time of Genesis, the grotesque paganism, the, the rampant and perverse immorality. I mean, just read, just read Genesis 18 in the account of Sodom. That's the world in which Melchizedek lived and reigned. The unrestrained depravity of the Canaanites such that in 400 years, God's going to wipe them all out as an act of his judgment upon their wickedness. 
That's the context, and it's out of that context that the king of righteousness appears. Shining like a light in the midst of the the suffocating and surrounding darkness of the peoples of Canaan. Human sacrifice. Child sacrifice. Immorality of the kind that isn't even appropriate to mention in public. You want to read about it, read Leviticus 18. And here's the king of righteousness. In fact, the interaction described in Genesis 14, I think, is telling. Because two kings come out to meet Abraham. The king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And only one of them is described as righteous. And Abraham believes, or receives a blessing from one and pays tribute to him. And Abraham's not even willing to receive a thread from the other. He's the king of righteousness. Second, the author identifies Melchizedek as the king of peace. Salem, right? Jerusalem means city of peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word from which we kind of anglicize it and get Salem. So he's the king of the city of Salem. He's the king of shalom. He's the king of peace. Now again, in Genesis 14, I think the juxtaposition of Salem and Sodom is telling. It's in the midst of warring kings and a war-torn region in the aftermath of battle and bloodshed that the king of peace arrives from the city of peace to pronounce a blessing upon the friend of God. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, summarizes the impact of the two titles, King of Righteousness and King of Peace, when he says, in a a godless, warring region, here was a King of Righteousness who ruled in the city of peace. And already, I think we can begin to see shadows, hints of a future King of Righteousness and the everlasting King of Peace. Third, the author states that Melchizedek is a priest forever. And this is where things get a bit tricky in terms of biblical interpretation. Because the author looks back at the Genesis 14 narrative, verses 18 through 20, and he doesn't see any record of the birth or the death or the ancestry or the descendants of Melchizedek. And he comes to the conclusion, Hebrews 7, 3, that Melchizedek, therefore, was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And at first glance, I, and perhaps you, am tempted to think, well, that's that's quite the leap in logic, isn't it? I mean, just because his mother and his father and his ancestry and his descendants and his birth and his death aren't recorded in Genesis doesn't mean they didn't happen, right? Doesn't mean that Melchizedek is eternal does it well this verse because of that very reason hebrews 7 3 has led some interpreters throughout the history of the church and you may have this written in the bottom of a study bible that you're looking at right now to conclude that melchizedek wasn't a man at all but was perhaps maybe an exalted angel or perhaps even what is known theologically as a christophany that is an appearance of The pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus before he was born of a virgin. All right? That is a view, but I don't think it's the right view. 
I don't think that's the author's point at all. For one thing, there's no indication in the text anywhere that Melchizedek is an angel. And furthermore, verse 3 would make no sense if Melchizedek was actually the pre-incarnate son of God. Because at the bottom of verse 3, the author says that he was made like, or in the NIV, that he resembles the son of God. And you can't resemble yourself. You are yourself. You're not made like yourself. You are yourself. Melchizedek is not Jesus. So what gives? Well, I think what the author is doing is he's, he's taking the information, or rather the lack of information, in Genesis 14, and he's using it to set up Melchizedek as a type, or a figure, or a shadow of Jesus Christ. In other words, We are meant to look at Melchizedek in the biblical narrative, both in Genesis and in Psalm 110 and in in Hebrews 6 and 7, and we're supposed to say, he looks like Jesus. He reminds me of Jesus in three important aspects. We're supposed to look at Melchizedek and be reminded of the king of righteousness. And we're supposed to look at Melchizedek and, and, and... The king of peace is supposed to come to mind. And we're supposed to look at Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, and we're supposed to think of our priest of God Most High. We're supposed to look at Melchizedek and think of Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's he's crafting Melchizedek as a, a type or a shadow of the Jesus who was to come. Furthermore, He's about to draw, in the the later portions of chapter 7, a massive distinction between the new covenant priesthood of Jesus and the old covenant priesthood of Levi and Aaron. See, in order to serve as, as a priest under the old covenant, you had to be able to demonstrate, to prove, to verify your ancestry leading all the way up through the tribe of Levi to the to the person himself, to Aaron. In fact, there's an instance in the, in the post-exile days in Ezra chapter 2 where there were certain Levites who wanted to serve as priests, but they weren't allowed to because they, can't, they couldn't verify their ancestry. It was required. You had to have a genealogy to be a priest of the Old Covenant. You had to know who your mother was. You had to know who your father was. But not Melchizedek, who evidently did not inherit his priesthood by natural descent. And therefore must have been appointed by God himself like someone else we should be thinking of. Jesus did not inherit his priesthood. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't of the family of Aaron. Rather, Jesus was appointed as the great high priest of the new covenant by God himself. Hebrews 5, verses 4 through 10. Right? The quotation from Psalm 110 and verse 4, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You, you, the Lord, the King, the Messiah from verse 1, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Levites, the priests of the Old Covenant, they couldn't continue on forever. They didn't have a perpetual priesthood, an unending priesthood. They were prevented by death from fulfilling the ministries of the priesthood forever. But The author's looking back and he's saying, you know what? There's no evidence. There's no record of Melchizedek's death. Not because he did not die, but because by the providence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's no record of it. 
Because the Holy Spirit intended Melchizedek to serve as a type of Christ who is eternal, who has neither beginning of days nor end of life, and who therefore holds his priesthood permanently, which is a point we're going to get to next week in Hebrews 7.24. And lest we think that this silence regarding Melchizedek's ancestry and birth and death is, is mere coincidence, I want you to think back to your last reading of the book of Genesis. And I want you to ask yourself, is there any worshiper of God in the book of Genesis, anyone whose mother and father we don't know, whose genealogy we can't trace back to Seth, whose birth is not recorded, whose length of days is not recorded, who the event of his death is not recorded? There's not one, except Melchizedek. All of which is leading us to the conclusion, it's not accidental, it's not coincidental, it's providential. The Holy Spirit wants us to look at Melchizedek and wants us to see Jesus. Alright, so let's wrap this up. Who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He is a shadow of which Jesus is the reality. Alright? Jesus stands at the center point of redemptive history. The light of the Holy Spirit shines in revelation upon him, and he casts a shadow back into the Old Testament. So you can see shadows of Christ reaching all the way back into Genesis, and Melchizedek is is part of the earliest form of that shadow of which Jesus is the substance. As the king of righteousness in Genesis 14, Melchizedek points us to him who is, according to Jeremiah 23, Daniel 9, and 1 Corinthians 1, our everlasting king of righteousness. As the king of peace in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is pointing ahead to Christ who is the everlasting king of peace, according to Isaiah 9.6. And as the priest forever... Without record of father or mother or beginning of days or end of life, Melchizedek points us ahead to the eternally begotten, Holy Spirit-conceived, virgin-born, crucified, risen, ascended, exalted, God-appointed high priest who lives forever and is therefore able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Look at Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews says, and see Jesus. All right, so then he proceeds on from verse 3, and he, he moves from establishing the identity of Melchizedek to what is, at least to our modern minds, a rather strange argument for the supremacy of Melchizedek over Abraham. All right, the, the argument of Hebrews 7, 4 through 10 can get, can get a little complex, so lest we get lost in the language I think it would be best if we take this a verse at a time. I'm, we're going to read a verse, I'm going to give you a little bit of explanation, and then we'll tie it all together at the end, and you'll see what he's doing. All right, verse 4. The author says, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. All right, so he tells you ahead of time. The, the argument I'm about to make is intended to display the supremacy of Melchizedek over Abraham. Do you see it? I'm going to show you that that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, whom, by the way, the author refers to as the patriarch, which was designed and would have captured the, the Hebrew Christian's attention to whom he's writing. Because nobody in Hebrew Christian thought 
Not even Moses, not even David. Nobody holds the place of esteem of Abraham, right? Abraham, the friend of God. Abraham, the patriarch. And so the author says, you know, Abraham, the patriarch. Melchizedek is over him. That's the point of verse 4, and that's the point of the following argument. Verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. All right. As best as I can tell, the purpose of verse 5 is to establish the custom seen in the law of Moses and, and evidently back in the days of Abraham of, of paying a tithe to those who were recognized as the priests of God. All right. Verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. All right. So now the author's argument is beginning to to focus in and to take shape. Abraham the patriarch, Abraham the father of Levi, Abraham the recipient of the covenant promises of God, acknowledged by his paying of the tithe the legitimate priesthood of Melchizedek and received from Melchizedek the priestly blessing. And then the point comes in verse 7. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The author, by the way, just presents this, this truth as self-evident. There's, there is no dispute. There's no worth arguing. The greater blesses the lesser. The lesser pays tithes to the greater. It's never the other way around. And we see that principle play out in Scripture. The fathers bless the sons. The masters bless the servants. The priest blesses the people. Jesus blesses his disciples. It is never the other way around. All right, so in verses 4 through 7, the first half of the author's argument is established. Here's what, it, here's what he does. Abraham, the patriarch, the recipient of the promises, the greatest Israelite ever, paid a tithe to God's priest, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, God's priest, pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. That's the argument. But he goes on in verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. All right? So have, having established the, the, the supremacy of Melchizedek over Abraham, the author is now going to construct a contrast between the priesthood of Melchizedek and the priesthood of Levi. And he's going to show that Melchizedek's is greater than, than, than Levi's. The issue at stake in verse 8 is duration of office. All right, in, in the case of the old covenant priesthood of Levi, the priests were only alive for a period of time during which they could perform their priestly ministry. All right, but the author is saying the priesthood of Melchizedek, however, all right, Melchizedek as the type, Jesus as the reality, it goes on. It's eternal. It doesn't end. It's forever. So so in verse 8, the author establishes the priesthood of Levi as temporary, but the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as eternal. Verses 9 and 10. And, so to speak, 
through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, again, this line of argument seems foreign to us. We don't tend to think like that. I don't tend to look at things your, your great-grandfather did and say, you did them because you were in him. But the Bible does in a couple of important places. The author's point in these verses is to establish the supremacy of Melchizedek to Levi and therefore the supremacy of Melchizedek's priesthood to Levi's priesthood. And he does this by saying that in a manner of speaking, Levi was present in Genesis 14 when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Even though Levi wouldn't be born for another century or so. So we're left asking, well, how was he present if he wasn't born for another hundred years? Well, the author is saying that he was present organically, biologically, within the body of Abraham. Therefore, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi also paid tithes to Melchizedek. Again, he says, so to speak. And when Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Melchizedek was also at the same time blessing Levi. And I would refer you back up to verse 7 where the author says, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So in the author's mind, therefore, Melchizedek is greater not just than Abraham, he's greater than Levi. And therefore his priesthood is greater than the priesthood of Levi. Now if that logic seems a little suspect to you, I understand, but I would refer you to Romans 5.12 and 1 Corinthians 15.22 where Paul uses exactly the same logic to explain why Adam's sin is our sin and why Adam's guilt is our guilt and why Adam's curse is our curse because we were in Adam and when Adam sinned, organically Biologically, representatively, we were in him such that his sin is our sin, his guilt is our guilt, and his curse is our curse. So, let's wrap it up. Verses 4 through 10, the author is establishing three truths. You have them before you in your bulletin. Number one, verses 4 through 7, he is going to argue that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And he he proved this by pointing out that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and without any doubt, the greater blesses the lesser, and the lesser pays tithes to the greater. Right? In, In his mind, point proven. Number two, that Melchizedek is greater than Levi. He proved this by arguing that that Levi was, was organically, biologically, genetically, representatively in Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and when Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And since the greater blesses the lesser and the lesser pays tithes to the greater, therefore Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi's priesthood. And then third even though he hasn't gone there and, done, and, and, and explained this explicitly yet, he's going to in, in the later part of chapter 7. Where, this is where he's headed. 
Jesus, therefore, is greater than Levi. Because God appointed Jesus a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. It's the associative property, right, math teachers? Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Levi. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Therefore, Jesus' new covenant priesthood is better than Levi's old covenant priesthood. Now, that was a whole lot of details. And I understand, and frankly wouldn't judge you if you, if you were a little bored. Zoned out a bit. But I want to draw you back in right now. Because here's how this applies. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, is the foundational argument for the next three chapters. The application is going to come in in the sermons that are going to come in in the following weeks. To his original Hebrew Christian audience, the application would would have sounded something like this, right? So put yourself in in the pew in in first century Rome, and, and the pastor is up here reading the letter from the author. Here's how it would have sounded to you. Don't you see? Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant enacted on better promises obtained through a better sacrifice. His new covenant priesthood is in every way superior to Levi's old covenant priesthood. Why then would any one of you seek to turn back from the new and go back to the old? Seek to turn away from the superior and return to the inferior? Why are any of you longing to return to the old covenant temple, to the old covenant priesthood, and to the old covenant sacrifices? Which, by the way, were only temporary and were insufficient to deal with your sins. He's going to hammer that point home. Christ is the true temple, he is the true high priest, and he is the true sacrifice. And here's the point. So now that the true and the everlasting and the better has come, it is foolish and furthermore it is dangerous to turn back to the old and the inferior and that which is fading away. But we are not first century Jews. We are 21st century Gentiles who, in most cases, are not tempted to turn back to the old covenant temple and priesthood and sacrifices. In most cases. Now I say in most cases because there is a strand of evangelicalism, popular in publishing and popular in broadcasting, that is founded upon a misreading and misinterpretation of certain biblical texts and is teaching people to look for a rebuilt temple and a restored priesthood and a renewed system of sacrifices. And against such a view, the book of Hebrews echoes with a resounding, No! We're not moving backwards in redemptive history. Because the true and everlasting temple is here, and He is Christ and His body. You! are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom God dwells. The true and everlasting priest is here, and he is Christ. And his priesthood is permanent, and therefore, 
He is able to save forever those who draw near to God in him. Why would you turn away? Why would you long for more Levites to fill an earthly temple to offer worthless sacrifices? Because the true and everlasting sacrifice has been offered once for all, Hebrews chapter 10. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who by the offering of himself has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, Hebrews 10, 14. In other words, the new covenant is here. So quit longing to go back to the old in which you weren't even included. The old covenant has passed away forever along with everything that belonged to it, the temple, the priesthood, and the sacrifices. So I urge you as you're reading books and as you're watching television to turn away from any teaching that teaches you to turn away from the supremacy and the finality of the new covenant priesthood of Jesus Christ. But, that's not most of you. So what about most of you? What is in the text for you this morning? For you there is a lesson on blessings and tithes, but not in the way perhaps you think. I want you to think back to the interaction between Abraham and Melchizedek in Genesis 14. All right? You guys are good biblical interpreters, and by now you know that Abraham represents you. He's your father in the faith. You are the children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. You're the heirs of his promises, right? Abraham represents you. Melchizedek represents Jesus. And as we have seen, there is an established pattern in, in the relationship between the priest and his people. The priest blesses the people. The people pay tithes or tribute to the priest. The priest bestows upon the people the blessings of God. The people give to the priest their tributes and their offerings. But I want you to notice carefully the order that was established, the priority that was established in Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek blessed Abraham first. And only then did Abraham offer to Melchizedek his tribute. In other words, Abraham did not purchase Melchizedek's blessing. The blessing was grace. The tithe was response, not payment. And so it is with Christ and his people, you. And herein lies the great difference between the law and the gospel, between every false religion, and true biblical Christianity. The law says, pay God and he will bless you. And some of you are tempted to live by that principle. Render to God and he will render to you. The gospel speaks a better word. And it says, the blessing of God is not for sale. It is free. It is received by faith, and then and only then, when you have received the blessing by grace through faith, are you able even to offer an acceptable offering to God. Blessing by grace first, offering as response of gratitude last. This is the all-important order of Protestant, Reformed, Baptist, i.e. biblical Christianity. Grace first, 
then response. Grace first, then offering. The order is established everywhere in the New Testament, probably seen most clearly in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where Paul says this, having spent 11 chapters on grace, And the blessing we receive through that grace which was manifested in Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 12, 1, before he tells them to do a single thing, there are no commands in Romans 1 through 11. And he's getting ready to talk about, all right, so here's how you live. Listen to the way he phrases it. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, right? Give yourselves to God because he has already given himself to you. That's the order. First comes the mercies of God, the blessings of Christ, who is our priest. Only then, in view of these mercies, in view of the blessings What is the blessing? It is forgiveness. It is justification. It is new life. Only then do we and can we offer to him our worship, our tribute, our lives as an offering of gratitude to him, which is our spiritual act of worship. When the offering follows the blessing, that offering is not payment. It's worship. So this morning, I want to close by announcing to you the blessing of Jesus, who is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, to you, the children of Abraham. So I'm going to ask you if you would close your eyes, and I want you to hear these words as if they come from Christ, your priest. I am the king of righteousness, and I am the priest of the Most High God. And I come to you from the city of peace, where there is reconciliation between God and sinners. And I offer myself, I have offered myself once for all upon the altar of the cross, And I have sprinkled the mercy seat with my blood to atone for your sins. I am risen. I am ascended. I am exalted. And I am alive forevermore to intercede, to interpose, and to mediate for you before the throne of God. And one day, my people, I will come back for you. And I will raise you to everlasting life. And I will clothe you in my righteousness. And I will bring you home to dwell with me in the city of peace, which is the new Jerusalem. Atonement and righteousness and resurrection and life and access to the presence of God are yours in me. This is my blessing which I bestow upon you now. It is free It is gracious, and it is received through faith. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you recognize Jesus as your great high priest who offers you that blessing?
Do you acknowledge him as your king of righteousness who reigns over the city of peace, which is the new Jerusalem? If so, then I invite you this morning to offer up this response. Together we, the people of God, the children of Abraham, who have received of the blessing of Christ, who is our great high priest, we're going to, with our voices in worship, and with the first fruits in offering, and with our bodies and our lives in service, we're going to offer him tribute in view of his mercies. It is our joy and our privilege to do so, for we are a blessed people. So I invite you to stand with me. And we're going to offer ourselves in view of the mercies of God to Jesus, who is our King of righteousness, our King of peace, and our priest forever. As we sing our praise and and lift it up as an offering to Him with full voices and with full hearts, I want to invite you, if you would like to find out more about how you can become a follower of Jesus, to come and to ask Gordon or I. We're going to be here up at the front. We would love to speak with you. If you do not know Christ as your priest and your king, then then you come and find us and we want to help you get to know him. But if you do, it's offering time. Let's worship him together.